Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Jesse Corns. Uh, you've probably seen me out in the lobby selling eggs and chasing my three children around after the gathering each week, but this is my first time up here before you um, giving a sermon. <laughs> I've been married to my beautiful wife and most, uh, most enthusiastic advocate for 14 years. Uh, we have three boys, Josiah, Gentry, and Leroy Jack. We live in Alito, which is about 40 minutes from Moline, and I work as a family nurse practitioner with Genesis Health Group in Alito, Illinois. Uh, we moved to Alito almost nine years ago from St. Louis. Uh, we lived in St. Louis for about 10 years. That's where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Alito, which is where we moved back. Uh, I lived in St. Louis, which is where I met my wife for 10 years. Uh, it's where we went to school and worked for a while. Uh, while living in St. Louis, we went to an Acts 29 church. And when we moved back to Alito, we Google searched the closest Acts 29 church and ended up at Sacred City Davenport. Uh, we attended Sacred City Davenport for a few years before we were eventually part of the Moline Church Plant. Um, we attended missional community up here in the Quad Cities for many years and eventually were sent out to start a missional community in Alito, where we currently lead with Sean and Addie Mears. Uh, the Lord has been faithful to grow our MC in Alito and bring more people into our church family, which we are thankful for. As I have said, this is my first time giving a sermon. I am much more comfortable being the guy behind the scenes. You might be wondering why I'm up here. That's a good question. I'm currently an elder candidate for Sacred City Moline. I specifically told Sam when I started the elder development process that I would do it if I didn't have to preach. <laughs> The Lord has ways of growing and stretching us that often requires us to step outside of our comfort zones. So as we jump into Psalm 23, please pray for me as I pray for you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word this morning. We pray that your word would be alive and true in our hearts, that you would speak to us through your spirit, that you would transform us, that you would reveal more of yourself to us, that we might see and experience the goodness of your shepherding over us, and that we would joyfully submit to that shepherding in all of life. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you think about when the term shepherd is used? Although we no longer live in the primarily agrarian society that David lived in, I think we all have an image that comes to mind. Gnarly men who have not showered in weeks who wear long robes and spend their times walking around with big sticks to care for their animals. Farming has changed a lot in the last few centuries. In developed countries with feedlots and hog confinements, farmers can largely walk away from their valued livestock 
and trust in automated systems of feed, water, and shelter to care for their animals. Today, the idea of shepherding is mostly used for biblical imagery in those parts of the world where this type of farming is still used. But in biblical times, the concept of a shepherd was very familiar. You either were a shepherd or you knew of one who was. Therefore, people had some understanding of the scope of the work and the demands of the job. I have never lived the life of a shepherd, but I have come closer than most in my years of caring for goats. My family has a small farm and we raise cows, pigs, chickens, and we still have a few residual goats that we keep as pets from our years of raising, breeding, and selling goats. Our goats lived in lush pastures where there was relatively little threat from predators and their mindless wandering was constrained by the modern invention of electric fences. Like many of our farming ventures, it seemed easy at first. The babies are cute and they love hopping around and standing on things and finding ways to be cute and photogenic. Unfortunately, things turned out to be much more complicated. Goats and sheep belong to the animal family Bovidae. What I have learned about the animal family Bovidae over the years is that they are always finding creative ways to die. Our nannies, our mother goats, would get pregnant pretty efficiently, but then they would have three or four babies instead of the typical one or two. They wouldn't produce enough milk to feed them all, and we would have to step in and start bottle feeding them. The goats are susceptible to parasites that they would get from the ground, and we would have to try various different anti-parasitic medications to help restore them to health and help them gain weight. And our goats were constantly trying to eat the grass on the other side of the fence. This would cause them to get their horns caught in the fences and cause injuries that I would have to suture up. I've put sutures in lots of adults and children, but there's nothing harder than trying to put stitches in a goat. As a goat purred, that's, that's a title that Sam invented, it was my duty to see to the well-being of these creatures, feed, shelter, protection, and care. All this being said, my career in goat raising was short and unsuccessful. With modern technology and medicine, I struggled to keep these animals alive and productive. How could some guy with a robe and a long stick do it without any of these resources? It was hard work, sickness, predators, the elements. You had to be constantly on alert. This wasn't an easy or glamorous job. Most shepherds were not necessarily celebrated due to their natural dirtiness and rugged lifestyle. At best, they were appreciated from a distance. When you know all this about shepherds, it makes you wonder why Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. It almost seems demeaning to think about him like that. But this isn't something that Jesus randomly throws out in John 10 so that we'd have kitschy wall decor for church hallways. This is the way that God has related to his people all through the Old Testament. It's referenced in Isaiah 40:11, which says, God tends his flock like a shepherd. But the most famous passage that keys us into this reality is Psalm 23, which we are looking at today. This is one of the most well-known passages, but it is loaded with all kinds of glorious truths and promises. But here's the thing. In order to lay a hold of those treasures and privileges, that Psalm 23 boasts of, 
you must understand and believe that you need a shepherd. Your shepherd is Jesus, and you need to be shepherded by him in all of life. There are shepherds throughout the Bible. In Exodus 3, Moses is out shepherding sheep when he encounters the burning bush. In 1 Samuel 17, David reflects on his shepherding days before confronting Goliath. Finally, we are introduced to the true and better shepherd in Jesus. You'd open your Bibles and read with me John 10, 1 through 18. John 10, starting at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls to his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the question is, do we still have a need for a good shepherd? We live in a culture that tells us, you are enough. You define who you are. You determine what is right. You determine your own destiny. And you can edit out anything that might stand in the way of what you want. Our culture wants us to believe that we are our own shepherd. The Bible is clear that we are not our own. There is a shepherd. His name is Jesus. He is the good shepherd, and you need him. God knows our frame. Whether we want to admit it or not, We are not like him. We are not all-knowing and all-powerful. We are foolish and short-sighted. We struggle to know the way. He knows we are feeble in nature and knows the depth of our need for him. But this does not exasperate him. It draws his heart even more towards his sheep. 
We live in a world that is confusing and constantly trying to uproot the truths of the gospel by promoting worldviews and ideologies that are anti-gospel. God desires for us to look to him for wisdom, truth, and guidance. When we try to be our own shepherd, we end up lost and confused. When we try to define for ourselves what is good, right, and true, we inevitably create more brokenness and confusion. As one of my favorite pastors always says, it's either Christ or chaos. We can see that we need a shepherd, but what kind of shepherd do we need? Psalm 23 describes the shepherd as a leader, one who restores, protects, and upholds. He is a comforter, hospitable, and welcoming. He gives good gifts. He is gracious and faithful. The shepherd is wise, powerful, present, and compassionate. That's what our God is like, the one that we call Abba, Father. In verse four, we see that the shepherd is powerful and present. He is walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is present. He is with us in the hard things. And he is powerful as he walks with us, carrying his rod and staff to protect and comfort us. He is not present like a helicopter parent, wrapping us in bubble wrap so we don't get hurt or experience pain. Rather, he allows pain and suffering because without them, we cannot grow and mature. He allows hard seasons because it is then that we feel our need for him and his glory is made perfect in our weakness. In his commentary on the Psalm, John Calvin says this, this is long, so buckle up. I think it's gonna be on the, on, the, on the screen, but it's good. God, in scripture, frequently takes to himself the name and puts on the character of a shepherd. And this is no mean token of his tender love towards us, as this is a lowly and homely manner of speaking. He who does not disdain to stoop so low for our sake must bear a singularly strong affection towards us. It is therefore wonderful that when he invites us to himself with such gentleness and familiarity, we are not drawn or allured to him that we may rest in safety and peace under his guardship. But it should be observed that God is a shepherd only to those who, touched with a sense of their own weakness and poverty, feel their need for his protection, and who willingly abide in his sheepfold and surrender themselves to be governed by him. David, who excelled both in power and riches, nevertheless frankly confessed himself to be a poor sheep, that he might have God as his shepherd. Who is there then amongst us who would exempt himself from this necessity, seeing our weakness sufficiently shows that we are more than miserable if we do not live under the protection of this shepherd? We ought to bear in mind that our happiness consists in this that his hand is stretched forth to govern us, that we live under, the sh under his shadow, and that his providence keep watch and ward over our welfare. Although, therefore, we have abundance of all temporal good things, yet let us be assured that we cannot be truly happy unless God vouchsafe to reckon us among the number of his flock. Besides, we then only attribute to God the office of shepherd with due and rightful honor when we are persuaded that his providence alone is sufficient to supply all our necessities. 
as those who enjoy the greatest abundance of outward good things are empty and famished if God is not their shepherd. So it is beyond all doubt that those whom he has taken under his charge shall not want a full abundance of good things. David therefore declares that he is not afraid of wanting anything because God is his shepherd. Jesus is ready to be your shepherd. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly says, Jesus' heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. The minimum bar to be enfolded into his flock is simply opening yourself up to him. Here's the catch. We all tend to be resistant to any kind of shepherd, even a good one. Like sheep, we go our own way. We foolishly try to be our own shepherd by building up false security, hope, and comfort apart from Jesus. We want all the benefits of a good and powerful shepherd, but we want it without having to submit to him as our king. Let us think about what the shepherd represents for a sheep and the ways we try to find this care on our own. Protection. Well, I have an arsenal and insurance. Providence. We have jobs family support, bank accounts, government social safety nets. Knowledge, we have Google and Facebook. The glowing box never lies. One of my roommates in college used to always come to us with the most crazy stories about things that he read about on the internet or saw on TV. And when we'd say, Dan, that's absolute nonsense, he would always insist that the glowing box never lies. (laughs) Power. I have abilities, influence, and a good reputation. Representation. My works and accomplishments should outweigh most of the things I have said and done that I'm not proud of. Could these things fail me? Are they enough? Will they always be there? Worry, fear, guilt, anxiety, and condemnation start to creep in when we think that we can provide these things on our own. When one fails us, we realize how fragile the rest are. We become like the man who built his house on the sand and long for the solid rock foundation that's found in Jesus as our shepherd. What now? I think that Psalm 23 gives us the antidote to our fear, worry, anxiety, guilt, and condemnation. And the antidote is God's presence in all of life. This brings us to the last point we need to believe, and that is, we need to be shepherded. It's hard to submit to the authority of someone else. Perhaps it is hard to submit your life to Jesus in whole because there is hurt in your past that makes you wonder if God is actually a good and loving father. Or maybe you hesitate to come to Jesus because you are unsure if he will be a faithful provider and care for your needs. There may be areas in your life where the culture is applying heavy pressure for you to relinquish the truths of the Bible and follow the cultural norms. But as Christians, our response is to hold fast to the shepherd and follow his wills and ways. God is clear in his word that we are called to submit all of our lives to the lordship of Jesus. Read with me Luke 9, 23 through 25. Luke 9, starting at verse 23. And he said to all, 
If any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There is not an area of your life that is not under the authority, power, and lordship of Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we come before the Lord and let him shepherd us? I think it comes down to faith. To be shepherded, we must believe that our God is a good father and that he is leading us to green pastures, still waters, and paths of righteousness. And to his table where we will feast and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To be shepherded, we must trust God with our past, present, and future. Psalm 23 shows us this from three different perspectives that we are going to explore. One, God is ahead of us preparing our future. Two, God is with us now in everyday life. And three, God is behind us bringing redemption from our past. One, God is ahead of us preparing the future. In the beginning of Psalm 23, we get a picture of a God who is a shepherd leading his people into the future. Because our shepherd is the sovereign God and king of the universe, we are freed from worry and fear about the future. Here we have been promised a shepherd who leads us besides still waters and in the paths of righteousness. This restores our soul and frees us from want. When you think about the future, do you feel like you are lying down in green pastures and besides still waters? Or like me, do you feel like you are lying down on a bed of Legos next to the Instapot releasing pressure? <laughs> what about the future brings you anxiety? Do you worry about losing your job or deteriorating health? What are you fearful of? Do you fear a hard conversation that needs to take place or a difficult life decision that you have been avoiding? As people who are surrounded by worries and fear, it is easy to lose sight of how big our God is. Our anxiety causes an increasingly larger view of ourselves and our role in this world and an increasingly smaller view of God and his power. We may see God as having the power to kickstart this whole thing, but now somehow imagine that he's sitting back in a throne recliner waiting to see how it all plays out. As our inflated view of ourselves continues to grow, the weight of fear and anxiety grows as we increasingly realize the extent to which we are not God. This process may have started with relatively pure motives. We want to do great things for God. We want to see our family, church, and community transformed by the gospel, so we start planning and equipping and preparing for what the future will look like transformed by the kingdom. We are called in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. I tell my kids that this means that we as Christians are called to conquer the world for the kingdom of God and bring all things in submission to his rule. Why then, in our conquering for the kingdom, do we so quickly become crushed by fear and anxiety? I think it's because of faith. We put too much faith in ourselves in this work and not enough faith in the greatness of our God and his promises. In his book, Future Men, Pastor Doug Wilson says, the presence 
or absence of faith reveals whether or not we have a biblical doctrine of our future. Unbelief is always anchored in the present, while faith looks at that which is unseen. But even here, we only get half the picture. Too often, we think that faith only looks at unseen heavenly things. But this truncated approach is really the result of incipient Gnosticism. In the Bible, faith includes the ability to see that which is unseen because it is still future. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ, not the day when he, Abraham, would go to heaven. Faith conquers kingdoms, faith stops the mouths of lions, faith turns armies to flight. The Bible is packed with promises that we can saturate our soul in. Read with me Psalm 25, verses one through three. Psalm 25, starting at verse one. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The beauty of the Psalms is that they have a way of tearing us down off the thrones that are not ours to sit on while at the same time reminding us of the power and goodness of the God that we serve. This equips us to conquer the world for the kingdom. When we develop a proper fear of God, this smashes the fear and anxiety of the world and frees us to do the dominion work that we are called to without the crushing weight of fear and anxiety. When we place ourselves in a proper relationship to the good shepherd, he settles our souls by still waters and green pastures. And one day, all that there will be is Jesus and the peace of his kingdom. Number two, God is with me in everyday life. In verses four through five, we get a picture of the freedom we have from worry and anxiety because our shepherd is with us in the everyday ups and downs of life. Verse four says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, do you ever feel like this is where you are walking? Are idols letting you down? Sickness, job loss, broken relationships, rebellious kids making you feel like a failure? 
Are you experiencing doubts or persecution that is causing you to question what you believe? Is the weight of sin getting so heavy that you cannot carry it any longer? I think of Little Christian and Little Pilgrim's Progress. You haven't read that with your kids, or even if you don't have kids, you should still read it because it's amazing. But Little Christian just can't bear to carry the weight that he's carrying anymore. Everyone tells him to just forget about it, but he can't. In the face of all this, how can we say with David that we will keep walking and fear no evil? The rest of verse four and five show us. They show us that God is with us, he comforts us, he prepares us, and he chooses us. These truths about our shepherd free us from fear and anxiety to walk faithfully with our shepherd each day. The second part of verse four says, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was a short, heavy, club-like device, and the staff was long and thin with a hook at the end. The rod is used by the shepherd to defend from the wolves, and for times when the sheep need a little more persuasive direction than the gentle pullback of the shepherd's hook. We find comfort in the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12, five through six says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises the son whom he receives. The rod and the staff also remind us that our shepherd is defending us. We have a God who faithfully defends his people. Second Thessalonians three says that the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the enemy. Calvin again says, every man that he may sleep soundly and undisturbed wraps himself up in carnal security. But there is a great difference between this sleep of stupidity and the repose which faith produces. The sheep find this comfort in the faithful guiding and discipline and protection from the rod and the staff. These tools used for us reinforce the truth that we are his not because we earn the right to be part of his fold, but because we have a God and a shepherd who let the full wrath of the rod be turned on himself. He paid our debt and now we are his. This is our true comfort. Not in the stability of a job, not in the approval of man, not in the love of a spouse. This comfort is faithful and unchanging and it will never let us down. At verse five, There is a change from the shepherd and sheep imagery to the house of the Lord and God as our host. In this, we have a God preparing a feast for us that our enemies are powerless to keep us from enjoying. Who, what are the enemies in your life that are keeping you from enjoying the feast that is set before you? Is the constant striving to be relevant on social media occupying your every idle thought? Is overindulging in food, sleep, or drink, not bringing you the inner comfort and peace that you thought it would. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have a God who is ready and willing to let us sit at his table and enjoy him. Let us boldly ask the spirit to transform us so that we are not half-hearted creatures who settle for less than what God has to offer. The next verse continues with the feast imagery when it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. 
This is the end result for a person who sits at the feast and enjoys all that the king has to offer. The oil reminds us that we are chosen by God. I imagine David writing this, thinking about when Samuel came to his father Jesse's house and anointed his head with oil to signify that he was the true king, chosen by God. This is how we can sit down and rest, even in the presence of our enemies, distractions, and critics. We are a people chosen by God to be his, and this is what defines us. Because of this, our cup overflows. When we realize the joy, peace, worth, and identity that is found in being sons and daughters of the king, the noise of the haters and the pull of the false and fleeting comforts of this world get quieter. In the presence of our enemies, we can enjoy our king and all that he has to offer. And say with Paul in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Three, God behind us bringing redemption from our past. We have been talking about God's presence in all of life. In verses one through three, we see how God is ahead of us so we don't have to fear the future. In verse four through five, we see how God is with us now, so we are freed from worry and anxiety. In the final verse, verse six, we will talk about how God is behind us, bringing redemption from our story. The final verse, the chapter starts with, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. One of my favorite seasons of MC life is sharing stories. Sometimes in the struggles of everyday life, it can become difficult to see how God is working and redeeming. It is beautiful when someone is able to share their thoughts on a season of life and through the help of their family, realize ways that God was restoring and redeeming brokenness in ways that they could not perceive in the thick of the struggle. These conversations are frequently used for the sanctification of the person sharing their story and for those in the MC who are listening. But none of that story is really happening that night. We are talking about the past, events that are behind us that we really have no control over. These may be events or seasons where we could see God working, and they may be seasons where we wondered where God was. We may reflect on certain seasons of life with a sense of God's presence and thankfulness, or we may be consumed with a sense of guilt and condemnations for mistakes or things left undone. This verse bids us to reflect on the sovereign goodness of our God who is restoring all things and redeeming our story. When we are God's people and he is our shepherd, we can say with David that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Back to Romans 8, which says in verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is our hope for God's mercy for us. And then verse 28 states that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. How could David, a man from the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus, say these things? We get a hint in the final verse when he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How can David say that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? At this time, the house of the Lord was a sanctuary. If we take this phrase as meaning that David's going to spend a lot of time in the sanctuary, then David was from the wrong family. Those who dwelt in the house of the Lord were the Levites, and David was from the tribe of Judah. This must mean that David was speaking about something that the temple was only here to represent. By faith, David was able to rest in the truth that he was a chosen son of the true king, that this was an eternal covenant that could not be broken. In Genesis 15, God tells the old childless man Abraham that his offspring would be a great nation. Abraham believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. David here is professing his belief in the same promise. This promise was made complete in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law and by whom we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Through faith in Jesus, we have a true and lasting hope. We have continual and unfettered access to the sovereign king of the universe where there is true comfort, peace, and freedom from anxiety. We know that he will redeem our stories as he is redeeming all things and that we will be with him in his kingdom for all of eternity. We are united with Christ in the gospel. This is the ultimate picture of God's presence in all of life. The more we believe these truths, the more we can join hands with David, our brother, and conquer the world for the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the promise um, that we have in Psalm 23, uh, for your presence with us in all of life. We pray that we would be a people who joyfully submit to your shepherding in all of life, and that in that we would find true joy and peace and comfort and freedom from striving to be a people who live for your glory in all of life and who conquer the world for your kingdom. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.